Well, hey, uh, if you didn't know, this week um, on, uh, I guess it was Thursday, we officially launched our search for a new worship leader. And um, I just want to give a great big thanks to Tom for connecting us with Slingshot. Um, Thank you, Tom. I want to also thank um, everyone who weighed in. You know, a lot of you just, we wanted to hear your perspective, the things you were praying and thinking. So thank you to the choir, uh, congregation members, to the staff for for just sharing your heart with us. Um, Thank you also for everyone who's praying about this. I've had a number of people saying, we're really praying for wisdom. We're praying that we're able to identify that next person. And then thanks to everybody else for just worshiping in the meantime, you know, It's so easy to say, well, we're going to sit back and wait and see what happens, but not this group. You guys are worshiping. We talk so many times just about the singing and the hearts behind it. So um, anyway, with with that in place, um, some of us who have been around the block a few times uh, know that worship in general, but especially worship searches, have a way of introducing tension into a church body. Now, not here, everywhere else, but here. But, but it can happen. Um, in fact, there's an old saying, you've probably heard it, that when Satan fell from heaven, he landed in the choir loft, right? And um, it, it's, it's just true. You know, it's funny, we laugh because it's true. But, but worship can be a real area of tension for us um, because historically, some of the most bitter battles in the church have been over the issue of worship. Um, and I see a lot of nodding heads. You, you, maybe you've been there before and seen this before. But, and typically what that usually all boils down to is one thing. This one little thing called our personal preferences, right? Um, you know, hey, I, I, I like this group of songs, not that group of songs. Um, I prefer these kinds of instruments, not those kinds of instruments. My preferred style of worship is far superior to that other stuff, you know, that newfangled 7-Eleven stuff or those old kind of rusty, dusty hymns. But the fascinating thing about our preferences in worship is that they usually, if you trace them back, they tend to go back to a time um, when we were, uh, f- that was formative for us in the church. You know, maybe it was that style of worship that we grew up with that somehow became sacred to us. Or maybe it was just the, the style of worship that was really popular during our formative spiritual years. So what we're going to do today is we are going to take a look at the good and the bad of our personal preferences, all right? In other words, we're going to see how our personal preferences can be very, very wrong or very, very right. So we'll have some fun. I see some people looking at each other like, oh boy, we're going to have some fun today. We are. Let me pray for us first. Um, Lord, I, I just think back to when we began this whole series and we, we just noted that some of the Psalms are really raw and really real. And God, Psalm 73 is absolutely one of the rawest and realest psalms that are out there. And yet, God, there's so much goodness for us here. Father, I thank you for this man who who wrote this psalm and just the courage he had to tell us about the journey that he went on. And so, Lord, we just today want to put ourselves under your word. And I agree with Tom. God, we ask you to minister to us through your word and by your spirit today in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, um, if you take notes or if you, you know, look back, kind of track the history of sermons, some of you have already realized I have preached on Psalm 73 before. But I promise you, I have never preached on Psalm 73 from this angle. Um, it's one of the neat things about Scripture. Some of you, you who've, who've done, you know, Bible studies or you've spoken before, you know that Scripture can teach us, the same passage can teach us very different lessons. And today we're going to look at a very different lesson from Psalm 73. Uh, the writer is a, name called, uh, is a man called Asaph. Um, he is uh, no stranger to worship. Uh, Asaph was a worship leader in King David's court, a musician himself, and uh, he, he went on to write 12 of our psalms. So here's a guy, when you hear his name, Asaph, you ought to go, hey, this is a credible voice. This is a man who might know what he's talking about when it comes to worship, and especially when you read the opening line, because it just sounds so good. Verse 1, surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Amen, hallelujah, here's a guy who's got something to say to us. But, he writes in verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. What Asaph is telling us right off the bat is, hey, surely God is good to Israel. I know this now, but there was a time when I almost lost my faith. My heart became so dark and so cluttered up that I nearly lost my faith in God. I was almost destroyed. I committed a sin so big and so profound. Now, we hear that and we go, oh my gosh, Asaph, what did you do? Man, are we talking murder? Are we talking jaywalking? You know, did you not help somebody across the street? We don't ever want to be in this position. What in the world did you do to do this? Well, he goes on to tell us, verses 3 through 5, he starts it. I almost lost my faith because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Now, hopefully right off the bat, you heard uh, a little sub-theme here, which you're going to hear through most of Psalm 73, a, a, a word that begins with an E and it ends with an exaggeration, right? Um, right off the top here, he goes in to describe something that, that it just, he's a little out of bounds here emotionally, but we hear these opening lines, these first three verses, and we go, okay, I get it. I see the sin. Asaph uh, fell into jealousy, right? The green-eyed monster bit him, and he's just jealous of the lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know? He's looking at the haves, and he considers himself a, a, a have-not. And that certainly is true in verses 3 through 5. But then we get into verses 6 through 12, and something else emerges. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up their waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like 
Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Do you hear another sin coming to the surface? Finger-pointing, calling them proud, violent, evil, arrogant scoffers. You see what he's doing here? Asaph is, is looking outside of the community of faith, and he is lumping everyone together. He's judging all of their hearts. And if that seems a bit ridiculous to you, that's good. Because Asaph can't possibly know the sin of every single person outside of the church. But he's taking this one-size-fits-all, and, and he's just wrapping all of humanity in it. There is no way he knows the condition of every single heart. And we know this is ridiculous because it is followed by Asaph in the next breath, wildly exaggerating and overstating his own goodness and his own godliness in verse 13 through 16. Listen to this. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocent. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like this, I would have betrayed your children. In other words, what he's saying, Lord, if, if I told everybody how it really is, for all those people out there and for all of us who are close to you, everybody would have left the faith. That's his statement. But do you hear what he just said? I have kept my heart pure and my hands clean. That's a pretty tough thing to say as a child of God. As somebody who's experienced the grace and the mercy of God, someone who relies on the forgiveness of God. Uh, 1 John, for example, 1, 8 through 10, if we, meaning Christians, claim to be without sin, we're deceived and the truth isn't in us. If we claimed we haven't sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word isn't in us. This is uh-oh territory, folks. And don't miss, don't miss the in vain part. In vain have I lived for you, God. In vain have I worshipped you. In vain have I obeyed you. Asaph is pointing to heaven and he's saying, look, God, when it comes to, to, to living for you, you've been asleep on the job. You know, I have walked with you. I have served you. And my only reward, again, is punishment and affliction and again, the exaggeration, all day long. Bottom line, our brother Asaph here, and, and he's confessing, he's admitting it, he is way out of bounds here. But then all of that changes in verses 16 and 17. I was deeply troubled by all this, he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood. In other words, Asaph is saying this. I went into church, heavy, storming, brooding. You know, I've judged everybody and myself. I went into the sanctuary, and then I came into the presence of God, and suddenly I came to my senses. Suddenly I had a wake-up call. He says in verses 21 and 22, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And just so you know that word brute beast, 
Um, the word is behemoth in Hebrew. That can refer to cattle, uh, chickens, pigs. But here, the exact construction of it, it, it has its, it, you, you find it in one of the places in Scripture at least, and that's Job 40, 15, when Job is describing that great big water beast. So what Asaph was saying is, look, when I came into church like that and I had that wake-up call, I realized I've been like a great big hideous beast, like, like a monster. God, I was telling you, and I was telling you who to blast and who to bless. And Asaph then repents, and God restores him, because that's what God does. That's who God is. You referred to that in worship time. God always forgives us when, when we turn to him in repentance. So that's looking at, at, at this psalm from another angle, but we still have a question to answer. And the answer is, well, what exactly was Asaph's problem in the first place? It's probably a good idea to identify this. What, what exactly drug this man down? And the answer is very simple. The answer is judgment. Judgment is what just knocked Asaph right off the tracks. You know, we talked about this before, but Jesus is so clear to us when it comes to judgment. And the clarity is, it's not for you. Anyone who walks around in human skin Judgment is never something that we get to pick up. He says this in Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Do not judge. Well, there's kind of no ambiguity there, is there? Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the standard or the measure you use, that's your standard now. That's the way that you will be measured. Have you ever noticed this with judgment? You know, if you ever stop to think about it, judgments always backfire on us. Have you ever realized that? I, I, I had this realization, I was telling Tom the other day, I, I realized one time I had judged someone. Um, in my heart, I had judged them. I'd made some decisions about them. I had no idea who they were, but I just figured out, well, that's how they are and that's who they were. The next time I saw them, I couldn't even look at them. You know why? Because when we judge other people, those people are dead to us. Whenever we judge other things, the same thing happens. We can no longer see the beauty or the value in other people. And that's why only God can do this. Only God can pull this off. And of course, what also happens to us is, you know, we judge them or we judge that thing. And then we turn around and we do just what Asaph did. We judge our way and we judge ourselves. And in both cases, we and our ways end up being sacred sacred to us. And so Psalm 73 stands as a real warning about putting ourselves first and our desires first and foremost. So here's what I want us to do. I want to invite you to join me and just consider for a minute what you hold most dear when it comes to worship. I want you to consider your favorite style, your favorite instruments, your, your, your favorite music. And by the way, let me say this, there's nothing wrong with having a favorite style, okay? Um, we all have different music, different instruments, a different style that we connect with, with uh, to God uh, more, more than others, all right? So there's nothing wrong with that. But let's have a moment of truth when it comes to all the styles of worship. Now, this is a visual, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm not, and don't worry, I'm not going to actually use this. I just want to show it to you. 
This, okay, this is my guitar. No, I promised I wouldn't. This is actually no more sacred than this, and vice versa. Neither one of these are any different. Let me tell you what, what happens in Scripture as I disappear behind the, the organ there. Um, in Scripture, this is fascinating. All right, let me find my way here. Um, scripture actually does not endorse any one style of Scripture. Now, I've heard people try and do it before, but that's a bend that, that doesn't work. It actually doesn't. Um, in fact, I'll just bring up Psalm 150, which I'll preach about. Psalm 150 literally endorses every single instrument that is available at that time for worship. Listen to this. Uh, the ram's horn, the lyre, and that's the instrument, not the person. Uh, the harp, the tambourine. Well, wait, let's scratch the tambourine. We got to scratch that one out. Um, dancing, strings, flutes, and loud cymbals. That's even percussion. Every single thing that is available. Now, probably not all at once, all of those, right? Tastefully done, but literally anything that's available in Psalm 150, God says use it, including your own body, dancing as an instrument to the Lord. Paul in Ephesians and Colossians literally endorses every style of music that is available to the church in that time. Psalms, hymns, and even songs from the Spirit. And then there's Jesus, right? The one who died for us, our Lord, our, our Savior, our Creator, our God. Jesus defines true worship, not in, in terms of a style at all. He determines, he, or he defines true worshipers and true worship as worship in spirit and truth. Worship that's founded on the Word of God and coming from a heart, from the heart. Jesus doesn't have a hint a wink, a nod, or even allusion to any specific style. And where that leaves us in these days is, is, is right here. The sacredness of worship is not in a style. It is singing to God, grounded in the Word of God with grateful hearts. And you know the truth is when it comes to, to, to worship that every generation has done that in a way that typically is a little different than the generation that came before them. Meaning this, as mature believers in Christ, we want to hold our preferences, and we can hold them. We can have a favorite, but we want to hold them lightly. What we want to hold on to, though, in worship is the Word of God and, and, and these grateful hearts and make sure that our worship is pointed upward. So that's the caution when it comes to personal preferences. But, but I did say earlier that our personal preferences can actually be very right. So how is that possible? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Our preferences become holy and right and good when they're aimed at other people. Romans 12.10 says this, be devoted to one another in love. Prefer or honor one another above yourselves. I remember back when I was in college, um, pretty newly saved, you know, or, or Jesus had become the Lord of my life, and man, I was excited about worship. 
Oh, I was excited about the church. I worshiped the InterVarsity, and oh, it was just everything was Jesus and God, and the, you know, just, just it was all so brand new. And um, I had a favorite style of worship. I had a style of worship that I really, really, really liked. And in my immaturity, every other style of worship was eh. I was very critical of any other style of worship except for the way I was worshiping. And I let everybody know it, you know. I would talk down anything that wasn't what I was doing at the time. And I remember uh, my campus IV worker, somebody who loved me very much, Norman, if you're out there anywhere in the world watching this. Norm came to me one day and he challenged me. And he said, Steve, I can't believe what you're saying. Because when you say those things about your way being the only way and everybody else is being lame and everything else, you are dismissing and demeaning everyone else's faith, Every, everyone else's way of connecting with God. You are judging their taste. You're judging their maturity in Christ. And by the way, Steve, if you are so mature in Christ, you ought to be able to go into any church that worships, is worshiping God biblically in any other way, and you ought to be able to connect with God. And I just remember when he said that, I don't think I have ever repented of anything so fast in my life. And so what I've learned just, just along the way in my life is that preferring one another is so central to worship. It makes such a big deal. And I don't just want to say it to you today. I actually want you to see it as well as hear it today. So um, I've got a little movie clip. Now, some of you who have seen this are, going, are probably going, I know what he's going to show us. And you're right, I am. I am going to show you that. Um, in this following movie clip, um, this is, is uh, 60s, 70s, that early time period, um, there was a, a pretty big movement in the church, and suddenly you have two very different groups of people coming together, sharing the same space. And they are really struggling to worship together. Um, specifically in this scene, uh, a head deacon of the church has just come to the pastor, and he said, look, man, I'm sick of these hippies in our church. They come in here barefoot, and they're ruining the carpet. And so watch what happens when it comes to preferring one another. No, will you get those, those first two lights? Thank you, buddy. See, that's it, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? And by the way, just so you know, that works both ways. I love that. In, in that old man, that can be a younger person crossing the aisle to say, I appreciate the way the generation that came before me worships. I care about that. I care that you connect to God. And of course, it works with maybe that, that former generation coming and saying, I love what God is doing in a new generation. And what we want to do is we, we want to be a church where people find forgiveness and freedom in Jesus Christ. I love that, uh, and by the way, I want you to know this too about this sermon. This sermon is not a bait and switch. It's not a setup. It's not to say, okay, I said it. Now next week, fog machines and diddly little. It's not what that is. It's just to say we, we want to capture the heart of worship. And we want to be a people, whether we're worshiping God through the organ with high traditional praise, or whether we're worshiping God uh, in, in a contemporary manner, we are worshiping God gratefully from the heart. I want to tell you this too, since I repented, some of the most beautiful worship experiences I have ever had have been in some of the most unlikely places and with some of the most unlikely people. Um, I'll just tell you about a few of them. Um, like with uh, 100 inmates in Pender County Medium Security Facility, we're all locked behind bars. I'm going I'm to speak. 
and to watch a hundred prisoners, and they're there for the long haul, and they are roaring an old hymn of freedom with all their might. I have had the privilege of worshiping with 10,000 teenagers in uh, the, the big Phoenix arena. Some of y'all who go to Phoenix, y'all probably seen that place. And, and they are worshiping God with all their might to Christian heavy metal. It's a beautiful thing. I think of our first little congregation in Burgaw, North Carolina, rural as can be, okay? You know how they did worship? With a banjo and a fiddle, and it was, it was bluegrass almost every single week. You know, completely different. I, I think about, the kids aren't in here, but I think about worship with our kids every year at VBS. You know, when they're bopping around all over the place singing the latest little cheesy song that group publishing has come up, but it's worship. And it's one of the most beautiful things to behold. And of course, I remember worshiping with 200 Ghanaians um, five or six different times, singing at the top of their lungs to the worst instruments, musicians, and worship leaders you have ever heard. And in every one of those, God is being lifted up. And people are just falling in love with Jesus. And worship is everything it's meant to be. Why is that? Because style isn't sacred, style never was. What is sacred is worship aimed at the only one who is worthy of it from his word and from these grateful hearts. Does that sound like a good target for us to hit? No matter who we find. <laughs> okay, let me pray for us. Father God, we love you so much. And we just thank you that, Lord, we really are, we really are poised with, with open hands and open hearts Father, I thank you so much for speaking to, to our elders um, through your people, God, um, through our history, through the, the, the longings of our heart from every generation. Lord, we together today just want to do something a little different, and we want to commit this search to you together in Jesus' name, to say, Father God, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Lord, and, and as we're taking that journey and walking through Psalms and, Lord, weekly worshiping, would you just create in us clean hearts? Would you, would you fashion, um, just, just, just shape our hearts to be filled up and poured out? We love you, and God, it is our privilege as your people to worship you. Oh, God, what a gift this is. We bless you. We love you in Jesus' name. 